0: You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Merry Christmas in July. We made it all the way through the Old Testament. And you get to finally be in the New Testament today, my name is Dean, I'm the pastor here at City Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. Let's pray together, and then we will jump in and celebrate the fact that God has come to be with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for Your Word. Uh, we're thankful for our church. Uh, we ask that as we talk about how much You've done for us in Christ, Your love for us, that it will compel us to want to love others, to want to love You more, uh, to make Your good news known. We ask to be with all the churches in our city, as they Gather today. We also ask to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city, and that the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ, that it will be something that doesn't just sit in our minds as just a fact to accept, that it actually changes our lives and wants us to live our lives for your glory. You are worthy of it. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Camino de Santiago. The Camino de Santiago, it's in Spain. And it's a 500-mile trail that is a pilgrimage in the Catholic Church, and the belief is that the Apostle James is actually from the town where the trail finishes. So, for some people, they just like to hike and like to go, you know, you know, kind of conquer new journeys and kind of like the mountain climber kind of person that wants to do Mount Everest and things such as that. But for other people, it is a significant spiritual event to journey on the Camino de Santiago. Walking the full trail across Spain can take anywhere from six to eight weeks. I would definitely be in the eight weeks club, just side notes. But why this is so significant, besides a neat journey, getting to see this, it goes through small towns and a really neat adventure through the country as I've researched this, The Catholic Church, and this is not me being harsh or throwing shade, this is is factual. The Catholic Church traditionally considered it, and still does to this day, one of three pilgrimages, which includes Rome and Jerusalem. But this certain trail that ends up at the tomb, they believe, of the Apostle James, if you finish the 500 miles, the reward is your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Walk 500 miles. I think I'd be like, I'm gonna take my chance on no. But walk 500 miles on this trail and you will have the amazing privilege of having your sins forgiven because of your hard work. There's also a staircase in Rome. It's closed for renovations, which kind of makes me laugh. But there's a staircase in Rome that they believe to trace back to the steps that Jesus walked with Pontius Pilate, that if you walk up those stairs on your knees, for every step you make up this like 40 steps, something like that, it's nine years worth of indulgences where you're forgiven at that time for your sins. I bring this up and I start here to say that this is not reserved for just people in Spain This kind of thinking is not just reserved for people in Rome, but for anyone who believes there's something that we have to do to make ourselves right with God. That there's something that we can accomplish, an act that we can achieve, a staircase that we can climb, a 500-mile trail that we can walk, or even a good deed that we can do a church service to attend, a a neighbor to love, kids to raise rightly, a husband or a wife to love, religious practices to accomplish, confirmation, baptism, first communion, whatever it might be, church on Easter Sunday, all the things that are out there that can make us believe that these things will earn God's favor to the place where he will grant us salvation. And here's what we must realize Anyone who walks the Camino de Santiago believing that accomplishing this 500 mile trail will grant them salvation is someone who believes functionally without even realizing it that Christmas isn't necessary. We couldn't reach heaven without you. So you brought heaven down. This is the story all of the Old Testament is pointing towards. Much doom and gloom. Great times in the Old Testament, but lots of doom and gloom. And At the end of the Minor Prophets especially, I mean, we see this harsh judgment from God uh, because of the sins of his people against him, and we see people who have a promise, but it's not tangible. So in their minds, there's not a lot of hope there. Yeah, I want to try my hardest to believe God, but they were humans just like we are, and that can be really tough sometimes. There's a promise, but there's so much doom and gloom. And then after that, there's 400 years of silence, as in 400 years where people heard nothing from God. Yes, they still worship God, and by silence, it doesn't mean their their faith went away, but there was no new revelation. There was no new message. It's important to know that it's not that the Old Testament was written on Friday, they clocked out, went home for the weekend, and came back on Monday and started the New Testament. There was 400 years where these people heard nothing. And human nature would have thought, I guess God has forgotten about us. And then all of a sudden you get to Matthew chapter one. And you see this in verse one. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And they're like, whoa, whoa, David, Abraham? Oh, oh, we we know those names. Sorry. I get excited about this whole Christmas in July thing. I'm knocking things over. We know those names. David, the king. Abraham, the promise was made that God would give him this great family that would bless the nations, that from him would come this great blessing. And here is Matthew saying, here it is. Orrin Martin, who's a theologian, wrote this. God without us, again, no relationship with God because of our sin, became God with us, Jesus dwelt among us, so that he who was against us God, because of our sin, we are people who justly were receiving his punishment for our sin, could become God for us. That is the Christmas story. In Matthew chapter 1 through 2, Jesus arrives as the long-awaited king in the line of David. He came to save people from their sins. He's the true Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate with his people. He's the son of God, the king of Israel. He is the Lord and creator and ruler of all things. And it starts with a genealogy. Like, how boring. It takes like two pages of the Bible. The son of this, the son of that, the son of this, and it's like, oh, can I skip that during my Bible reading plan? But there's actually so much there. He's actually making the case that Jesus actually is the one who was promised. Because this promise had to come through this family. This promise to Abraham And it continues all the way through, a promise ultimately that was understood by faith. And what Matthew's gonna do is he's gonna make two cases, and one is that Jesus gives us new life for today, for right now, and also from the old, that his life fulfilled the story of Israel. Patrick Schreiner wrote this, to read the Gospel of Matthew well is to read it with a Jewish storyline. With all the books that precede it rumbling in our minds. For example, the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew doesn't make sense unless Jesus is the new and better Moses who actually could follow God's laws, who could perfectly obey these things. Jesus' death is nothing more than a tragedy unless we know he actually fulfills the scriptures. We should see it as the furthering of the story, not a repackaging or a new understanding. It's the continuing of the great story that goes all the way back to the beginning of there being a holy, perfect God who created a people to worship him. Rather than worship him, we said, God, no thanks. We don't want to worship you. We want to worship other things instead. We want to be our own gods. Well, God will not share his glory with another. He will not let sins go unpunished. What kind of God would that be? He can't be holy if that is true, but our God, as he is holy, is also merciful and compassionate and loving and did not punish us as our sins deserved and provided a way for us. For a while, it was to cover your sins for a little bit, a sacrificial system where you could have atonement for your sin, kind of a forgiveness on loan kind of understanding. But ultimately, he would have a plan, again, from the beginning of time. He knows no time from... Eternity forever, that would not just forgive people for a little while, but would forgive them forever. See, the Gospel of Matthew is best understood with one eye looking back at the old story and the other one looking straight ahead to the new story. And the key to really understanding Matthew is the word fulfillment. And Jesus actually taught Matthew this. Now, he's not making this stuff up himself. He's right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also Jesus directly taught him as a scribe and taught him these things. And fulfillment means to bring something to fruition. That really all the Old Testament and all things, period, are brought to fulfillment in the name of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. Why do we say amen to the glory of God? Because God has kept all of his promises. Every promise he has made to his people is found understood and answered yes in Jesus Christ. And Christmas allows us to begin to go, oh, he is the great promise keeper. He has not forgotten his people. He's had a plan all along. And Jesus, through his coming, begins what we can just simply call a new era, Matthew chapter four, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, as in turn from sin and to God, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. There's a great announcement made on his arrival. Turn to the things of this world and turn to the fulfilled promise of God standing right in front of you. There's, there's a lot of things in Matthew, but basically three primary things. And I would say they're one, the incarnation, which is Christmas, that Jesus with us, Emmanuel, God with us. There's kingdom instruction. In other words, now how shall we live in this new reality? And the third one is there's gospel. There's good news, which includes the death of Christ, the resurrection, his ascension, his second coming. See, Matthew writes this in the the context of those three main themes because Jesus has appeared on earth, the incarnation. He's taught us about the kingdom of God, and he died for the sins of his people. So this king from David's line is also the true son of Abraham. And if you notice in the genealogy, if you've read it or will read it on your own, that Jesus' birth and also into the first narrative of Matthew in the first couple chapters is described from Joseph's point of view. In the book of Luke, we see a lot of focus on Mary and her story. But in Matthew, we see more of a focus on Joseph. Why? Because Joseph was a significant figure in this line because Joseph comes from this line of David. So again, he's writing to convince a Jewish audience that this is the fulfillment of all of these things, which is why you see Joseph more locked in on than Mary in the early beginnings of Matthew. It was essential that Joseph would actually be the earthly father of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 60 tells us that when a light comes to Israel, It'll be a time of salvation for God's people, of renewal for them, and should cause the people, their hearts to rejoice and to react to this good news. See, the king has now ushered in a new kingdom that is not of this world. Again, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. He goes into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days, but is without sin, which is the great fulfillment of the fact that God's people were in the wilderness themselves, but continued to sin. See, life with Jesus is a greater exodus. In chapters five through seven, primarily, we see the Sermon on the Mount, which answers the question, now how are these people who know the Lord, who have been saved from their sins, who are loving God and, and loving others, how are they actually supposed to live? How does this all work now? How are citizens of the kingdom supposed to live their lives? And we also see a new community, a new people who were made. See, the early church included both Jewish and Gentile Christians, both now coming together, formerly hostile groups, formerly people who were separated, who had tension with each other. And Matthew's gospel would have encouraged them to transcend ethnic and cultural barriers in unity. And that unity is their common service to Jesus as the Messiah. That they're now members of a universal church. See, in the Bible, unity is never for the sake of unity. It's not a buzzword. It's not a panel discussion. It's not a forum It's not a hashtag. It's not a bumper sticker. It's centered around a new identity and a new kingdom. And that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's very specific. A new category has been formed. A new people have been made. And they're God's people. See, Matthew establishes the identity of Christ's church as the true actual people of God. It's not just reserved for people who are from the lineage of Abraham because now we, all those who are in Christ, we are of the spiritual lineage of Abraham. Now we find our unity in service to Jesus despite racial, class, whatever the religious for them, Jew versus Gentile, whatever the barriers might be. His gospel provides necessary instruction for all future disciples, Jew and Gentile, who again form this new community that he is going to call The church. See, God's saving work in the present age is carried out through the church. It's what he has established, the local church, and he continues to build the church and inhabit the church. Like if you are now a kingdom person, a person of Jesus Christ who are identified with him, that the local church should be part of your regular rhythm of your life. Because now these are your people. You know how folks like to say things like, those are my people? Like these are my people? Ultimately, it's not fellow FSU fans who are your people. It's not fellow Americans who are your people. It's not fellow Democrats or Republicans who are your people. It's not folks who love home renovations who are your people. Name that hobby, name that thing, name that interest, name that classification, name that subgroup. Your people as Christians are ultimately the people of God. And guess what? That's a bunch of sinners who have been forgiven. But since we're still on this earth and still pretty foolish, we still sin. So that family, your people, can be pretty complicated. There's a lot of them. There'll be times you're frustrated with them and annoyed with them. But what is it about us that wants to give more grace to everyone else except for God's people? Like, what is it about us that our harshest critics often, our criticisms often are towards fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe don't do it right all the time while always embracing the world? Could it be we have a who are my people problem? Now, the scriptures have strong corrections towards God's people. God doesn't ignore when his people get off the path. He doesn't ignore when his people are in sin but he also never stops calling them his own and you as a believer shouldn't either. If you're quick to give grace to unbelievers but slow to give grace to your own brothers and sisters, maybe that's a you problem and not a them problem. Here's what Jesus says, I also say to you, Matthew 16, that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What just happened here was Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave a couple answers and Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, like you're the promised Messiah, like you're the one who fulfills everything we've been taught from the Old Testament growing up. Jesus says, Peter, you're right. And on that confession, I'm going to build my church. And it's gonna be so powerful because I'm the author of it, not people, like, like it's my church, he says, And the gates of hell will not be able to overpower it or overcome it. He goes on to give five discourses, they're called. Uh, Really, Jesus' five five major discourses are addressed at least in part to his disciples. But it forms, as the Gospel Coalition says, the most comprehensive collection of Jesus' instructional ministry found anywhere in Scripture. They paint a holistic picture of life lived in obedience to Christ. And the church has used these discourses to instruct believers in making disciples throughout the ages. Jesus also speaks in parables, stories, images to help his disciples understand more. Oftentimes wanting them to be able to figure it out. Sometimes explaining it very much in detail about what it is he's referring to. I would say one of the most monumental moments in the book of Matthew is what's called the transfiguration. It's in Matthew chapter 17, verses one through eight, and when you first see it on the surface, it's kind of simple to understand what happens, Jesus transfigures, like that's kind of, maybe the point of the story you might think, like he's the son of God, okay, cool. But he goes up on a mountain, and we read the Old Testament, God's dealings with his people are often on a mountain, and Moses would have to go up there. No one else could meet with God because of their sin. God can't have sin in his presence, but God allowed Moses to serve as a type of mediator, to go between God and man, oftentimes up on the mountain. So now Jesus goes up on a mountain with his disciples and he's transfigured and Moses and Elijah appear. Like their spirits appear, and people can actually recognize and can see them. And while all of the Gospels, that is the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very similar in their presentation. They all include this transfiguration moment, but Matthew in particular wants to draw readers' attention to Moses and the fact of Mount Sinai, where Moses dealt with his people. Because the story he tells is gonna echo Israel's story, it's gonna complete it, as in God's promises fulfilled, and then it's gonna move forward Let's read it. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. When Moses would meet with God, his face would be lit up. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him then Peter said to Jesus Lord it's good for us to be here if you want he's getting nervous here he wants to do something I want to set up three shelters here one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah always just kind of you're getting anxious and overthinking while he was still speaking suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him he is the one, he has the authority. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Notice now, all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah don't seem to be anywhere near important anymore in this picture. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. Now, that is significant. Why? Because all the work of Moses as the mediator, Elijah as the prophet, is now understood and fulfilled in the person who is standing right in front of them. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus came to them, don't tell anyone about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why? Because Jesus has work to do. The reason he came was because of giving his life. He came to die for the sins of many. So let's not have anything distract or disrupt this plan to go straight to the cross. His disciples asked him, what then do the scribes say? Why do they say that Elijah must come first? He says, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, he's telling them he's the greater Elijah. Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. They rejected Elijah, they're going to reject me. Then disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Was the fulfillment of Elijah, preparing the way of the Lord. They rejected John they they rejected Elijah. They rejected John the Baptist, actually killed him for the truth that he proclaimed. And now they're going to do the same thing to Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is transfigured before the three disciples, he completes the story of Moses and Elijah. He becomes the new mediator who goes up on the new mountain and reflects God's presence. He's the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, the fulfillment of their roles. Jesus also knows he's going to suffer. He's the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. He says this, Matthew 20. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. He's like, but don't be mistaken. On the third day, he will be raised. The one that should have never been condemned was. So the ones who should have been condemned would never be. Think about that. The one who should have never been condemned because he had no sin was condemned. In our place. So the ones who should have been condemned never would be that's why he tells us in john chapter 3 that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world but the world might be saved through him that this is the great news and he tells them it's going to happen to them as well then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you you'll be hated by all nations because of my name that's a promise Paul in 1 Corinthians says the gospel's foolishness to those who don't believe. People will not only just hate the Christian message, they will hate Christians too. And I think there's two things that can be true at the same time. One is that we love anyways, period. We love anyways. These are both true at the same time. Second, we realize that we can't be winsome enough, cool enough, compassionate enough, are loving enough to have the world like us. Because Jesus was perfectly all of those things. And the world still hated him. So what he's saying is, if the world hated me, how in the world do you think you're exempt from this? This is the same one who also loved the world. So two things true at the same time. We love anyways. And two, we understand that us loving is never going to get the world's approval. And if it does for a minute, it's gonna be very, very temporary. I worry today how many Christians are deep down inside a little embarrassed by the Bible. It's like they have to apologize for it. Don't wanna go there on certain issues because why? We wanna be liked. I get wanting to be liked. Who doesn't wanna be liked? But we're never gonna be liked enough to get the world's applause, why? Because we were never designed to receive the world's applause. It's fleeting, it's temporary, and it's not the way of Christ. So they will hand them over to the Gentiles, be mocked, flogged, crucified. Third day he'll be raised. Like if this happened to Jesus, why would we think it would happen to us? He says in verse 10, then many will fall away. That'll be the result. Like You'll know who's really with us when the heat gets turned on. They'll betray one another, they'll hate one another. The church will turn on itself. But he also says this, in the same breath, he says, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. He wants them to be aware of these people. He's not afraid to say that. It's another thing Christians don't like nowadays. Is when someone says this is a false teaching, people don't like that. Why? Because they want to kind of have this fake idea of unity. Remember, unity is found in Christ. He says, lawlessness will multiply the love of many will grow cold, but listen to verse 13, what a promise. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Why, because Jesus endured to the end and he rose again, from the, he rose from the grave. The good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world. Listen to this kind of prophetic word here from Jesus. As a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. But the gospel news will go out to every people and then we're told that Christ will return. And then we see really the, the main theme where the gospels lead, where the whole Bible leads from Genesis all the way to here, the death of Christ. From the slaughtering of lambs and goats in the Old Testament, their blood being shed as an act of atonement, now all being pointed to the ultimate lamb of God who will be slain for the sins of the world once and for all. And we see this in Matthew 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. He died by crucifixion between two criminals. Remember who Matthew's writing to. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary, and they come from a temple context, have to, go, have to hand your sacrifice to the high priest who goes through the curtain into the holy of holies to present that sacrifice. You can't do it yourself. Your relationship with God is only based on that. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two. From the top to bottom the earth quaked and the rocks were split. As in this system was now gone forever because I don't need a priest or a curtain or a temple or a system to get to God, I go to God through Jesus Christ. The priesthood of all believers, that all Christians, at all times have access to God because Jesus is our mediator. And as all the gospels do, they then tell the resurrection of Jesus, that he rose from the grave, that ultimately death did not conquer him. As a result of that, it ultimately will not conquer us. Paul writes, death, where is your sting? It, it does not have the final word anymore because Jesus died and was risen. Then we see this at the end. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. This is post-resurrection to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted, which, you know, I, that, I think we can cut them a little slack. He died. <laughs> if they saw him die. Now he's come back to life, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Like how interesting, that it's like parting words to them at this time were about authority. Like I am the one, like my words are authority. He says, because of all this, because of everything we just talked about, because of my death, because of my resurrection, because I have all authority, go, therefore make disciples of all nations baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And you're not going to be on your own. The Spirit's going to fill you and guide you. Remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Like, do we really believe that the response to the truth of the gospel should be to go and tell? It's the last thing in Matthew. Like, Matthew ends after that. I really believe that every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every person this side of hell. I believe that with all my heart. See, the Great Commission is what started it all. But more than that, it goes back to Genesis 3 and to Genesis 12 and continues through the rest of the Bible of God saying, I am going to redeem a people for myself. And this redemption comes through Christ's work for them, for me to do for them what a trail in Spain could never do which is forgive sins. We started a church 14 years ago. It's actually 14 years in August. Why? Because the promised Messiah has come and will come again. We believe the local church is the greatest way to make that known. And not just the gathering on Sunday, but the scattering the rest of the week where people go into their world and proclaim the good news is why we put a significant amount of money, significant amount of money, I mean six figures worth of money every year into international missions. Why? You might say, well why do we do that? There's lost people in Tallahassee. Well yes they are and that's why we're going full speed here and we gather and we do everything we do. People in Tallahassee at least have access to the gospel. Now we have four churches on every corner, sometimes five. They have access to the gospel. Where our missionaries are located right now in in four different countries. We have people in Africa, in that continent, on the coast. We have Berlin, Germany. We have people in Thailand. We have church planters in London where you can hear the call to prayer from the mosque every single day. There's significantly more Muslims than there are Christians. And then just unbelievers in general than there are Christians. Why do we do that? Because the gospel's only good news if it gets there on time. And we actually believe that Jesus is the one he claimed to be. Like, like we started a church because the promised Messiah has come and he will come again. Matthew is actually one of my favorite characters in all the Bible. He was a tax collector. Which that does not mean he just like, he just, that was like his random job. He didn't work for like HR Block or work for the IRS. He didn't help you through taxes or it wasn't like, or, or just, or collect them. This was a different context and a different time. Tax collectors were viewed as like the lowest of sinners because many of them were Jewish descent that now would prey upon God's people by overcharging them their amount owed and pocketing it for themselves. And in that culture, you couldn't say no because they'll throw you in jail. They might even kill you. You can't say no to Rome or no to anyone else. So tax collectors were viewed as kind of like a reverse Robin Hood Rather than help the poor, they preyed on the poor. So they were just very disrespected. Then Matthew meets Jesus. And his life is radically changed. He's saved from his sins, has a new purpose for living, repents from his old life. And what's the next scene after Matthew comes to Christ? He's sitting around a table with all his tax collector friends and invites Jesus to come over and hang out with them. And the scene is Jesus, it's in Matthew 6, 5, 6, and the scene is Jesus, I can't remember where it is, it's Jesus hanging out with Matthew's non-Christian friends and tax collectors. Why? Because Matthew knew that every saved person, him, this side of heaven owes the gospel to every single person, this side of hell, starting with our friends and family. But why is it that the most difficult people to share our faith with is our friends and our family? And it makes me wonder if we have a love problem. That we love not awkwardness and we love an idea of peace at the moment more than we love God and more than we love our family. Because what we're saying there is that peace and a lack of awkwardness really is more important than someone's eternal soul. The American family's in trouble because one of the greatest values once kids get older, like out of the house older, is simply keeping things peaceful. Keeping things peaceful. Because when grandma has everybody in town, you don't wanna talk about anything awkward. We just gotta kinda play house. Everything just has to be perfect. So we can't talk about anything. There's a reason why you can't address that situation with your sister with your mom. Because, mm, no, 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 peace, right? You got to peace. And here's just my plea to everyone. An hour of peace at Thanksgiving is nothing compared to eternal peace with God. I'm not saying everybody sits down that you go, okay, before we eat, we're going to talk about hell. Okay, I'm not saying we do that, okay? But the, the, we are, how in the world are we ever believe we're gonna carry out the great commission to the lost world when you can't have a conversation with your own adult kid? When you can't have a conversation with your grandkids? When you can't have a conversation with your coworkers so you claim to be close friends? Like we need to be people who actually believe this stuff. And I love that Matthew said, I know Jesus, come on. I'm not separating from unbelieving friends. I want them a part of this here's the story as jesus went on from there he saw a man named matthew sitting at the tax office and said to him follow me it's matthew 9 and he got up and followed him while he was reclining at the table in the house many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with jesus and his disciples when the pharisees saw this they asked the disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners now when he heard this he said it's not those who are well who need a doctor but those who are sick go and learn what that means I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew was provoked by the reality of his friends being lost. He wasn't offended. He was provoked by their sin, not trying to shelter himself from it. I love that Matthew's making his theological case of who Jesus is while never forgetting the people around him who need Jesus most that you can pursue knowledge and pursue Bible study and pursue doctrine and pursue theology and never neglect your friends who don't know Jesus for a minute. Matthew did both. There's a story where he talks about a Canaanite woman in Matthew from the vicinity, came to him, came to Jesus crying, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Here's the thing. There weren't Canaanite women by classification anymore at that time. Another, another book of the Bible would call her like a, a Phoenician woman, something I think I think is the term that's used. So is there a contradiction in the Bible here that Matthew calls someone a Canaanite woman when no one actually calls people Canaanite women anymore at that time? Or Canaanite men? No. Canaanites were the ultimate enemy of Israel throughout God's story in the Old Testament. And what is God telling them? This, her, 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 it's true that her initial descent way, way back was Canaan, what he's saying is, even the people who you think are your enemies, even the least of people you would expect, the gospel's for them too. It's for them too. That a Canaanite woman can come to Jesus and he will receive her. See, mission air should be the air we breathe. Like giving to our church should be the practice of our lives. We believe that it's mission ammunition to take the gospel to Tallahassee and the rest of the world. The Sermon on the Mount lifestyle should be the ethics that we live. Why? Because the Messiah has come and we believe that it's about Jesus. The one God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased should reorient our lives. I owe a pastor friend of mine in Madison, Wisconsin, He's been a Christian about, maybe about 15 years or so. Uh, Before that, I mean, his own words was the most like, if there was like levels of sinners, he'd be like a third degree black belt, okay? He just was like, nothing to do with God, living for the world, everything that comes to mind when you think of that was true of his life. I mean, just zero interest. Also I'll tell you, he felt incredibly empty inside. His life was a wreck, but kept pursuing the things that you would think you would pursue. More substance abuse, more women. Uh, was an um, all-conference football player. Would just pursue success on the field. I mean, like all, all those type of things. And one night he goes out, it was normal custom, and his buddy, who's usually his like, get totally, you know, completely slammed buddy, and then they'd wake up in different homes with different girls and, you know, reconvene the next day and all those kind of things. That they're out one night, and all of a sudden, his buddy isn't doing his normal shots routine. He may have had a drink, you know, a drink or something like that just to do it, but didn't, like, wasn't getting drunk, in other words. And my buddy, the pastor now, he says to him, he says, What's going on? Why why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing the normal deal, dude? What's what's going on? You sick? You don't feel well? He goes, Well, I I became a Christian. And he's like, You became a what? He said, I became a Christian. And his friend starts sharing the gospel with him. And my buddy wanted nothing to do with it, brushed it aside, loved his friend, but no, no, no. But he kept, kept showing up, never left his life, stayed in it. My friend describes it like this. He goes, man, when he would talk to me about God, he talked like he knew him or something. And eventually it was like, oh wait, that's not weird. I can know God too. And he had bottomed out for the hundredth time, whatever it was, and just was totally empty. And this is after a long time with friends sharing the gospel with him, he shows up at his friend's door at two o'clock in the morning. Knock, knock, knock. His friend comes to the door, and he goes, "Man, I just, I just, I'm tired of it all. I'm just bottomed out. I just, don't, I don't know what to do anymore. And I'm just, I'm just over it all." And my, the buddy, his friend goes, "You know what to do. Come back and tell me when you realize it." And he shuts the door. <laughs> They've had like a hundred conversations. He goes back and reads his ent- reads the- starts reading the Bible, Says up all night long reading the Bible, and realizes, wait, I can know God. Like, I can actually know him. Well, how can we know God? Because Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem because we couldn't get to God on our own. We couldn't walk the 500-mile trail en- enough times. So God came to us he came to us like that's the christmas story how many friends do we have and family members who are going to decorate their house in december and walk around dorothy b oven 47 times the month of december and go to office christmas parties and have lights up and maybe even have an activity scene on their mantle and still don't know that they actually themselves can have a relationship with god because of what just happened, because of the events of Christmas. Will we open our mouths, not just in December, but now? Like will we open our mouths and tell people that Jesus actually is the way, the truth, the life? Like will mission air be the air we breathe? Will we, rather than being offended by people's sin or will we be provoked by it? Rather than worshiping the God of it not being awkward, will we worship the God of heaven who sent his son so we may know him? My friend, after he read his Bible, gave his life to Jesus on his own, on his own. And he and his buddy are still best of friends to this day. He's pastoring a church in Madison, Wisconsin, one of the most unchurched places in all of America, making known the name of Jesus Christ. And I'll never forget the way he tells that story. My buddy shared the gospel with me, and he didn't, he didn't have categories, he didn't know all these things, he's a person who's not a Christian, and he goes, it was like he knew God or something. Isn't that true? But how much greater that God actually knows us. All possible because the story was fulfilled in Jesus. Let's pray together and celebrate Christmas in July. Father, we are thankful for these truths. We are thankful that we can know you because you have come to us. The common thread we all share in this room is that the God who created the world loves each and every one of us. Lord, let us be people who respond to your salvation, who share your good news, who live a kingdom ethic in this world, because we want our distinct lives to point people to a distinct God. I know I'm not perfect at that. I know there's not a person in this room who's perfect at that. So we look to the one who is, and his name is Jesus. So Lord, let us celebrate the reality of the Christmas story right here in July knowing that the Old Testament has been fulfilled and the story keeps going, and that one day the one who came, who died, and who rose will return again for his church, and will make all things new. Give us the compassion and the urgency and the courage to make that story known. That's all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand up and sing some good news about the reality that Jesus, the anticipated one, the promised one, has come.